what it takes to build a $100 million business, and how to identify a promising real estate investment. This is Industry Focus Financials Edition. Happy Monday, everyone. I'm Gabby LaPera. John Maxfield, our senior banking specialist, joins us over Skype. And we have Tim Lee, the founder of Hoffman Lee, which is a multifaceted real estate company based in Colorado Springs, Colorado, um, to help us talk about a topic that we don't normally really cover. Normally, we're all about the investments. Um, and this is also a type of investment, but different from stocks. We're going to be talking about real estate today. Uh, welcome, Tim. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Well, thanks for calling, and I'm looking forward to talking about one of my favorite topics, uh, real estate. Fantastic. Um, so, just before getting started, I, I kind of wanted to put out there that uh, we've gotten a couple reader questions about uh, the successful businessmen, um, people who've kind of self-started themselves, and Tim is a fanta- fantastic example of that. Um, do Do you want to give our listeners a brief overview of Hoffman Lee, like your elevator pitch? Um, what does it do? When did you found it? Where do you see it going in the next 10 years? Do you feel like you're being interviewed? Because you are. <laughs> sure. Well, so I was a law school uh, dropout who became a door-to-door life insurance salesman. One day I was calling on a, a young guy who was leasing commercial property for a living. Back in the day, I didn't know you could even earn money leasing commercial property. I'm from a small town, so I didn't even, wasn't aware that that was an option. I became so interested in what he was doing and determined that it was something I could do at a high level, so I quit selling life insurance and became a commercial real estate leasing agent. And I knocked around for a couple of years with uh, companies as an employee uh, broker. Uh, Then in 1987, my former partner, Bob Hoff, and I founded Hoff & Lee. In fact, when we opened our doors, our attorney told us he would be dumbfounded if we lasted a year. But since then, we've become the longest continuously running commercial real estate brokerage in our market, and now we're on our way to building a national brand. And over the years, we've developed systems and processes to make our job, you know, more scientific and predictable and easier to execute. And so what we do is pretty simple to understand. We, uh, I like to tell people, we list, lease, sell, manage commercial property, and we invest for our own account, and we, we lead other investors. So, Tim, one of the things that Hoff and Lee has really doubled down on since the financial crisis is my understanding is owning and operating commercial real estate. Can you talk a little bit about your investment philosophy in this regard, as well as what you perceive to be uh, your competitive advantage when doing so? Sure. Well, we've been successful investors because we watch the business cycles and we watch real estate cycles and we buy when the party's over and the chandeliers crashing to the floor and all the dancers are running for the exits, you know. And the implication is that you have to have a great amount of courage, and you do, uh, because we buy when everybody else is selling, and that, that's not an easy thing to do. And I can remember after the last crash, um, we had a lot of heartfelt conversations around the kitchen table trying to figure out if the market was ever going to recover. And markets always recover. They always have. And, but the last crash was so bad, we were, we were pretty fearful. But we stepped to the plate, and we made a lot of good acquisitions, and that's proved to be a pretty successful strategy. And, and really what we do, um, I would say, is counterintuitive. We, we really don't chase markets. We try and we do a little bit of market timing. Um, we really watch what's going on in the larger business world and, and just in the world in general and try to buy when we see uh, there may be some opportunity. Um, you know, p- philosophically, it's kind of my belief that most transactions occur because of greed and fear. And because that's the case, most folks make bad investment decisions. 
And my experience has been that most folks invest really because of the adrenaline rush that comes from investing, and they continuously chase the last best horse. And what we do is different. We look for boring investments that pay us money every month. One of our really strong competitive advantages is that we're brokers and are on the ground floor. And because we are, we get a first look at good deals. And the implication for the average investor who might be listening to this podcast is they need to find a trusted broker who is successfully invested for their own account. And, and by the way, that's not just a broker, but that's somebody who has successfully invested for their own account so that, that the, the you know, listener knows that that person has ex- good experience. And they either need to partner with him or her or develop a relationship where the broker knows the investor's needs and abilities. And, and then the investor has to be ready for the day when the broker calls and says, hey, send me your money. Because the fact is, is that good deals are picked up quickly. And, and then, therefore, that trust relationship and the availability of the investor's liquidity allows the average investor to play at what I would consider to be the A level and, and be able to take advantage of markets that normally wouldn't be available to them. And, and part of our national franchise model was designed around the idea that all real estate is so local, and because it is, and because we wanted to have a diverse uh, market opportunity across the country, we figured out that having brokerages in all these markets um, put us on the ground floor with those folks that are in those markets. And so it's not unusual for us to get a call from one of our network offices and say, hey, you guys need to fly out and take a look at this deal, Salt Lake or Akron or Jacksonville or something like that. And if we didn't have a network, we would never get a chance to even look at those deals. So, you know, Tim, so, when, when, you, when I hear you saying this thing, the, what really comes to my mind is what one of Warren Buffett's probably most famous sayings, right? Is you want to you know be greedy when others are fearful, and fearful when our others are greedy. And Buffett is talking really you know in the context of either buying whole companies like Berkshire Hathaway does, or in the context of stocks, you want to act countercyclically. So I guess what's what's so interesting is that you're saying that you are see you see as both a broker and an owner of commercial real estate that same exact type of behavior in the real estate market that we see in the stock market. Oh, yeah, I think without question. I mean, uh, you know, a, a good real estate, I mean, at a high level, good real estate is sold by, you know, a call for offers, you know, which is a, kind of a pretty interesting concept as opposed to a stock where you just, it's a free-for-all and, you, you know, you, you know, you go in and try and buy it at the market. But, um, you know, to really get the, the, you know, kind of what we do that's maybe different than, than um, what a lot of folks might think of commercial real estate brokerages to uh, do uh, is we have a real market orientation. So we don't chase after large institutional real estate as an investment. What we do is the stuff that the everyman could do. And so we work in what I like to call the bottom 80% of the market. And, and we look for value opportunity. And, and there's a lot of that out there, but you've got to really, you know, pay attention to what's going on in the, in the overall economy. And so like, you know, the implication might be, for example, a China market melts off like it did last week. And so then that causes some person in Colorado Springs to get scared and decide to sell a building. And maybe at a discount, we come along and, and we're not so afraid of what's going on in China because we understand what's going on. And we say, well, we'll buy that property because it looks like a real, it, we're going to be able to buy it below, you know, prevailing markets and, and create some value for ourselves. And, and we work in, you know, again, what I call the bottom 80% of the market, which is where the typical maybe investor is, 
is at. You know, I mean, the top 20% is the large institutions, and, you know, that's a whole different conversation. So we're, we're kind of like blue-collar, lunch-pail commercial real estate brokers that, that go out into local markets and find, you know, what we figure to be really good real estate investments. Um, I, I heard you mention that you were expanding, um, and you mentioned a bunch of different places. Uh, I think you said Ohio and Utah and Florida. Um, and I was wondering, how, how did you pick those markets? Like, what is driving your strategy behind expansion? Well, at the end of the day, what really drives it's just relationships. Uh, we meet somebody and, and we, you know, uh, build a relationship and, and grow the business that way. But the strategy was always to recruit new network offices in markets where Southwest Airlines flies directly from Denver. And the theory is, is that Southwest put all the, they did all the heavy lifting, and if the market, you know, is strong enough for them, then we, we believe it's probably strong enough for us. And then additionally, we look at tertiary markets. So we look at for SMSAs that between maybe 300,000 and a million population, which in our market, uh, in our world, is a market that's overlooked by large existing national franchisers. And so we're not interested in butting heads with existing large commercial brokerages in L.A. or Washington or New York City, for example. And we believe there's great profit in the Omahas of the world, and, and we believe we're the alternative to those large existing brokerages. And, and we're a family business. My daughter, Holly, and her husband, R.D., now lead the executive team. And under their leadership, we've grown from a one-market you know, boutique real estate company to an emerging national franchise brand with a unique model. And kind of what separates us is, is the simplicity of our model. I mean, we're, our model is, is designed by high-producing commercial real estate brokers for high-producing commercial real estate brokers and, or for those other brokers who want to take a sales, their sales career to the next level. And so we offer no startup cost, a high payout, and, and provide an entire backroom operation that comes with any nationally scaled company. And, so, for example, we answer, you know, the guys in Ohio, we answer their phones. The guys in Jacksonville, we answer their phones. We answer every broker's phone in every market in our Colorado Springs office. And we can literally put a new broker in business inside our network within 24 hours of contracting with a fully developed website and fully complemented marketing team at no cost to the new broker. And probably a key, you know, you, you could say our primary focus um uh, is is not the technology really that everybody has. It's what we like to. It's our relationships and the development of a culture of success, which includes, you know, in our case, emphasis on family and loyalty and entrepreneurship. And as to the scalability of Hoffenly, technology and the internet and the cell phone allow us to grow our network without limitation. So you know, we can be as big as we want to be, except for the limitations of you know finding quality folks to join us. And that's the big trick is finding the quality folks. And the limitation of time, because you just can't, you know, we're, we're not a huge organization, we're growing, but they're, we're, so we're so small that we can only do what we can do. Um, part and of Tim, our unique selling, pro go ahead, I'm sorry. Not, not to interrupt, but one of the things that we've talked in the past, and one of the things that I found so interesting in those conversations is that, you know, when you're in the stock market world, real yep. estate, from the perspective of an investor, it's a really bad name, and it's based largely on Robert Schiller, who's a professor at Yale. His observation that you know over the last 100 years, on an inflation-adjusted basis, like real estate, and I think he's talking specifically about current uh, residential real estate, has appreciated something like one percent. I don't know the exact percentages, but I mean you're talking we're talking in basis points, not like a hundred percent. But there's really more to the story than this, isn't there? Specifically, if you buy say a second house with a mortgage. 
your return, assuming it's leased out, is going to be more along the lines of 6%, right? Like your mortgage plus presumably some type of small premium. Can you dig into this a little bit and kind of yeah, dispel so I, this I, notion? You know, that I'll give you an example. You just consider my daughter bought a house. She bought it to live in it. Then she, you know, fell in love and moved in with her boyfriend. She paid a couple of hundred thousand bucks for the house. Her house payment's 1200 a month. She collects 1450 So right there, she's making cash flow. And so you would measure her return based on the cash flow compared to her investment. And her investment wasn't the 200000 she paid. In her case, I think she paid $10,000 down. So coming out of the gate, she's making, you know, $3,000 in cash flow against that 10000 investment. I mean, that's not bad. Um, her house is probably going to appreciate in our market, even as bad as, you know, it is probably, it's really going to go up probably 2% a year. Um, that's another 300 and something dollars a month. And then she gets the tax benefit of depreciation, and that's probably another 350 a month. And so, you know, you add, add those three elements, the cash flow, the appreciation, and the depreciation, which are real benefits that you get, you know, she's probably making somewhere around $900 a month in, in value. Uh, and then, of course, and then over the course of that, so she puts 10000 10, down. Presuming she holds that as a conventional mortgage, 30-year mortgage, she holds that for that entire 30 years. Assuming it, the, you know, on inflation-adjusted basis, it still appreciates, but let's say it even stays even, you're still looking at a, a, a not um, illegitimate return, right? I mean, you're not looking at a zero return. It's because you're not just looking at the appreciation. What you're saying is that, you have that appreciation, but you also have the depreciation, and you also have the cash flow, and you put those three elements together. Sure. We'll just uh, go back and just say one of the things I didn't mention was the amortization of the loan. So in, let's just say in this case, um, you know, pick a number. It doesn't matter. Say the amortization is $150 a month on this loan to begin with. You know, over time, somebody else is going to buy that property for her. Um, that's a huge benefit. So that, that $150 amortization for a stock investor buying a mutual fund on a dollar cost average basis, I mean, there's a $150 deposit going into a mutual fund. It's the same equivalent, except that they have the other benefits that we just talked about, cash flow, depreciation, and appreciation. So, you know, I, I get a kick out of folks who want to debunk real estate in this investment. You know, I've, I've owned stocks from my own account. I own high flyers, and I owned low flyers. I've never known real estate to go to zero because there's intrinsic value to the physical asset, to the tangible asset. And so, you know, real estate, in my mind, is, is a great investment. One of, the, one of the things that people used to, you know, we always say it was not a good investment because it was highly illiquid. And I would say, uh, to the contrary, uh, real estate can be highly liquid with a simple credit line that's attached to the property. So you could literally write a check for whatever cash you have in terms of the equity. So I think, I think uh, you know, John, one of my philosophies has always been if you, if you want to beat the statistical average, which says that, you know, when you reach retirement age, you're either dead or dead broke. I mean, simply to, to beat that average, I've always said you buy one house, pay for it, that's the one you live in. You buy a second house, you pay for it, and that provides you with money every month. And, and if you just do those two things and forget about everything else, I would argue you're probably, you know, in the top, you know, five percentile of all savers and investors at retirement. Okay, wow. This was a very um, comprehensive uh <laughs> this is a very comprehensive um, show. Um, I don't think we have that much time left, but I just want to give our listeners kind of a, a summation. Um, ultimately, real estate is a lot like investing, and a lot of the same lessons can be taken away from both, right? You want to be patient, look for long-term investments. You don't want to grab something and then sell it right away, like the chances of you making your money back on that are 
probably not as high, just like with the stock market. Um, I also want to emphasize the importance of doing research, both locally and globally. Um, part of the reason that Tim could be so successful is because he understands both the local market and then what's going on in the larger global economy at the same time, which allows him to take advantage of any downturns in the market, as we also encourage here at The Motley Fool. Um, also, uh, the two things also stood out to me is that he looks around him for opportunities, just like investors can. Um, so, things that you're familiar with, things that you know about, things that maybe haven't quite cut on everywhere else, like maybe you can you can catch that locally and ride the wave as it gets bigger. And most importantly is to buy things that you believe in. Um, just like Tim, uh, uh, make sure to invest in people that he believes in and uh, spreads into cities that he believes really are, are, are on the up and up, are on the rise. Um, you can do the same thing with stocks. Now, if you're interested in investing in real estate without actually buying your own properties, because that can be a hassle, or you know maybe you don't have the startup capital. Uh, one thing that you could look at investing in are real estate investment trusts or REITs. Um, we've done shows about them. We write a lot about them on the Motley Fool. I really encourage you to go out there and learn about them. Um, I think that's it. Unless anyone else has anything to say, it's all for me. That was a. We really appreciate you joining us, Tim. Yeah. Um, thank Bye. you again, Tim, for joining us. Uh, keep an eye out next week when I'm joined by Jordan Wathen to discuss uh, business development companies. It'll be a very exciting show if you like business development companies. Uh, as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Also, we recently revamped our podcast site. You can visit it at www.fool.com slash podcasts, and you can now also let us know what you think, both through our industry focus at fool.com email, or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus, which is also new for us, except it's not new for us, we just reactivated the account. But now you can do it again if you want to. Thanks very much, folks, and everyone have a great week.